And we find ourselves this morning at the beginning of book five in the Psalms, Psalm 107. As you're turning, we had our Presbytery retreat. It was uh, Thursday afternoon, Friday, and then Saturday morning. And uh, Friday morning, got to play golf with Van and Will and with Thomas Kuhn, who is our RUF minister, and was introducing uh, Van and Will to Thomas and just said, hey, so the, the, the Thomas Kuhn that we pray for, as we pray for RUF every week, this, this is that famous Thomas Kuhn. And uh, so we chuckled about that. But then afterwards, as we were playing, he's like, really, you guys, you, you pray for RUF every week? And I'm like, yeah, we, we do. There are, there are three particular ministries that we mention every week, and RUF happens to be, is, is one of them. And he was uh, very grateful, surprised, but I think grateful and encouraged that, uh, that we continue to pray for them. And so I uh, would just encourage you with that and ask that you continue to pray for that really good, really vital ministry that's happening on the campus of the University of Nebraska. So, uh, not not Thomas and I. Van is sandbagging. That's all I think we could say. Uh, anyway, Psalm one hundred seven. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they draw near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving, and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord for his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. 
They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the ways of the sea were hushed. And they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless ways. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Oh, Father, now we have these few moments. Would you make them count in light of the eternity that we all face? For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever needed to be rescued? Not aided not helped, not assisted, rescued. Left to yourself, you would never have made it through. You would never have gotten out. You would never have prevailed. But thankfully, you were rescued. As we enter into book five of the Psalms, we need to understand that the dominant theme of this particular book in the Psalms is different from book four. Book 4, which goes from Psalm 90 to Psalm 106, focuses our attention on God himself. As we saw, it was written to people who were living in exile, who were separated from their land, they were separated from the temple, and they were living under a pagan king. All things that were supposed to point them to God himself. And yet there is still one thing that does not change. God is still God. He is still in his heaven, seated on his throne. Indeed, all the things that were meant to point them to God are gone, but God remains. That's the great theme of book four. Book five then takes that and builds on it, and book five looks to the future. God has a plan, and that plan isn't just for people who are living in exile. That plan is for the nations as well. The promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him, and all the families of the earth would be blessed through him, that has not been lost. It has not been made void through Israel's disobedience. No, the families of the earth will be blessed through God's covenant relationship with Abraham. 
But how? How will God do this? Well, according to Psalm 107, God does this through rescue. Our God is a God who rescues. Now, if you have your bulletin, you may want to turn to page five, and there you'll find an outline for our time together. I'll settle in. It's usually about an hour. I'm kidding. It's not. It's about 25, 30 minutes, just so you, just so you know. Uh, and in there, in the outline, you'll see something called the big idea. The big idea, uh, we hope and pray in one sentence, is what the sermon is about uh, this morning. So here's our big idea. Consider the Lord's deliverance and respond in praise. Consider the Lord's deliverance or the Lord's rescue and respond in praise. Three points we would make this morning. First, we see that in Psalm 107, the psalmist sort of sets the stage for us by reminding us that God is indeed worthy of praise. He begins with a command in verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He's good, and His steadfast love endures forever. So he begins by reminding us of the nature and character of God. God isn't up some days and down other days. God is not inconsistent. God is not a sort of uh, divine schizophrenic being. No, he's good. And he's always good. And that term in verse 1, steadfast love or his hesed or his covenant faithfulness, we're told endures forever. Now, this is really good news for people who are prone to breaking the covenant. This is really good news for people who are living in exile, wondering if somehow their own disobedience hasn't made null and void the promises that God made in his covenants with them. The psalmist says, no, give thanks to God. Why? Because he's good. And because his steadfast love, his hesed, his covenant faithfulness endures forever. Have you broken the covenant? Yes. Does that mean that God is going to back away from you? No. He won't. His steadfast love endures forever. He continues then, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south. Now, those are two really loaded terms. Redeemed and gathered. Redeemed in Hebrew has with it the idea of being bought back from slavery. The same Hebrew word is used in the book of Hosea when God tells Hosea to go and to take an unfaithful wife. She is chronically unfaithful to him, publicly unfaithful to him in a most humiliating way. And God commands Hosea as a picture of his covenant faithfulness, as a picture of his steadfast love to go and to redeem his wife, to go and buy her back. That's the picture that God is painting for us in Psalm 107. We have been bought back. We have been redeemed. 
We were once in bondage and in slavery, but God in his grace has paid the price to redeem us. He also speaks not just of the redeemed, but of those who have been gathered. Israel has been scattered, as we've noted, to the east and to the west, from the north and from the south. But the Lord is in the process of gathering them together. They will return from exile. If you were with us this morning in Sunday school, we saw that great promise that God gives through Jeremiah that after 70 years, those folks that I've sent into exile, that I've sent into captivity, they're going to return. That particular promise loomed large in the book of Daniel. For as Daniel reads the words of the prophet Jeremiah, he understands, hey, you said it's 70 years, but you know, we, we still have a little work to do. Like, we, we need to repent. But it's that particular promise, the promise that after 70 years, God would gather his people back to Israel. It's that promise that motivates Daniel to pray. And we see it fulfilled in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. That indeed the temple is going to be rebuilt, not to its previous glory, but God's people are going to return. They're going to have their place of worship again. And Nehemiah is going to gather them together. He's going to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And God's people will live sort of in peace, not crazy peace, because it's always kind of a hot mess. But we see this promise that God makes fulfilled for his people. Friends, I I hope you understand why that's such good news for us. You see, when God promises to gather his people to himself in his new heavens and new earth, we know that he is both faithful and able. And we need both of those things. It's one thing to say, yes, God's faithful. God really wants to do this. But if God isn't able to do it, what's the point? It's just well wishing from a a deity who's not powerful enough to pull it off. Or what would happen if God was able to do it, but he just said, well, you know, here's the thing. Like you've, you've just blown it one too many times. I'm not going to gather you like I said I would. No, God is both faithful and able. He can gather his people to himself and he wants to gather his people to himself. And so let's understand, it's not just the idea of God that drives us to praise. It isn't just his character, though his character is Phenomenal. There is no one like him. But it's also the actual works of God. It's both who he is and what he does that makes him worthy of praise. Yes, our God is a God who rescues, and he rescues because that's his character, and he's able to rescue because he's strong enough and powerful enough to do so. He is worthy of praise. Secondly, then, we see a a group of, we get four pictures that have a common motif. They share a common theme. 
And that common theme, that common pattern is that of calamity, cry, salvation, and then thanksgiving. So starting in verse 4, we're given four pictures. Four pictures of individuals who all find themselves in need of rescue. And their circumstances are different, but in each time we see that pattern. There's a calamity. They cry to the Lord. The Lord hears them. The Lord gives them salvation. And so the right and proper response to the way that God has responded and rescued them is thanksgiving. So in verses 4 to 9, we see that there are wanderers who are retrieved. They are lost in a wasteland. They're wandering about, and they cannot find a place to settle. Now, this is not just speaking of those who physically are geographically, sort of like Abraham, are wandering about, and they don't have a permanent home, they don't have a permanent city. It isn't merely a picture of the Israelites as they moved out of Egypt and were moving towards the promised land. It's, again, not even just a picture of the Israelites as they're living in exile, living in cities that aren't there. No, friends, it's a picture of all of us as human beings. I hope you remember that in Genesis chapter 3, God's judgment on Cain for murdering his brother was that he would be a vagabond and a wanderer. Well, that's what sin does to all of us. We don't really have a home. The one relationship that's supposed to be central to our lives namely our relationship with the God who created us, has been destroyed. And the effects of sin mean that we never have a place to dwell. Well, the Lord rescues from that. The Lord delivers from that. We're told in verse 7, He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. God provides a way, and wanderers are retrieved. Secondly, we learn that prisoners are released. It's a frightening picture that the psalmist paints. You have an individual who's trapped and shackled in a dark place. You can almost uh, feel, if and, and uh, Bob could probably give us a, a much more vivid picture, transporting prisoners as they're shackled and chained to different places in his car. But it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, we're told that what's going on, Verse. look at verse 11, uh, why are they prisoners in affliction and in irons? They had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. They are imprisoned and it's their own fault. They are in shackles and it's their own doing. Now again, how often have we stood in the mirror and thought to ourselves, I have met the enemy and it is me. How many times do we have to sit and, and in our self-talk go, you know, I, I wish I could stop being my own worst enemy. It's wonderful, isn't it? When there are other people to blame. Most of the time, the person I need to blame is the, the, the moron who's looking back at me. Granted, a ruggedly handsome moron, but a moron staring back in the mirror at me. 
the prisoners are released. The sick are restored. They are weak. And not only are they weak and sick, but the world in which they inhabit is sick and weak. And there is something that could restore them, but they have no appetite for it. And so we're told in verses 17 to 22 of this really piteous group of people. This group of people who are in need of something. Something that can restore them. Something that can rescue them. And it's there, but they don't want it. They have no appetite for it. And so look at verse 20. He sent out his word and healed them. And delivered them from their destruction. And then finally in verses 23 to 32, we have those, we see the storm tossed or rescued. They're venturing out in a world of chaos. And guess what you find in a world of chaos? More chaos. And so in the midst of their circumstances, they are threatened to be overwhelmed. And what does the Lord do? How does the Lord help them? Verse 29, he made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. And they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Friends, do you remember what happened when Jesus was his disciples in the boat and the great storm came up? And he said to the waves, peace be still. Do you remember their response? Their response was not, Hercules, Hercules, Hercules. Now, what was their response? Who is this? Why? Because only God can quiet the storm. Only God can make the waves be still. Only God can bring them into their desired haven, having hushed the waves of the sea. Four stories, four ways of saying the same thing. In each instance, God's people need to be rescued. In each instance, God hears them when they cry out to him. In each instance, God delivers his people. And in each and every instance, God is worthy of praise. It's stunning in the New Testament the way, and and, uh, I I had to get the order of worship done early this week, and so I went with Matthew 11. I wish I would have gone with the Gerizim demoniac. Because in the story of the Gerizim demoniac, you see all of these things wrapped up in one pitiful, powerful, just compelling individual. He is released from his bonds. He can return to his home. No longer will he wander about the tombs. He is restored. He is rescued. All done by the word of the Savior. One of my favorite songs, one of my favorite hymns, was made famous by a lady named Mahalia Jackson. Why should I feel discouraged? And why should the shadows come? Why should my heart feel lonely and long for my heavenly home? When Jesus is my portion, a constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow. 
and I know he watches me. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Thirdly, then, we need to consider and attend. We need to consider and attend. After giving us four sort of vignettes of ways in which we are in need of rescue, we're given four other scenarios in life. Two of them are really good. Two of them are not good at all. And the psalmist now is sort of changing tack. He's moving into a wisdom section. In other words, the psalmist is telling us this is how the world really works. This is how God deals with his people. And so you need to order your life accordingly. Well, it'd be wonderful, wouldn't it, if all of our dealings with God were great all the time. That's not to say that God isn't faithful. But we understand at times that God doesn't necessarily give us what it is that we think we want. He always gives us what we need. But he doesn't always give us what we want. And so there's a kind of ebb and flow to how God deals with his people. And in verses 33 and 34, the psalmist tells us about the judgment of God. And then in 35 to 38, he follows that up with the blessing of God. And 39 and 40, we're told about the discipline of God for his people. And then in verses 41 and 42, we witness God's people being brought into God's joy. So it's an interesting pattern, isn't it? Judgment, blessing, discipline, joy. If you like judgment and discipline, please raise your hand. If you're saying this morning, I want all of the blessing and joy I can get, well, you're like all of us. But wisdom then means that we understand that this kind of seesaw experience, this ebb and flow experience, isn't strange. It doesn't mean that we lack faith. It doesn't mean that there's something going on in your life and you need to repent. It might. But we need to understand that this is simply how God brings us into his joy. It's not a straight line. There are ups and downs. There are ebbs and flows. There are good days and there are terrible, horrible, awful, very bad days. There are dark nights of the soul. Wisdom then means that we focus on the unchanging nature of God, not on the changing and fleeting nature of your circumstances. See, if you find yourself in a season of judgment, please know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you find yourself in a season of blessing, please know God hasn't changed. Your circumstances have, but he hasn't. If you find yourself under the discipline of the Lord. First of all, remember the the words of the writer of the book of Hebrews who says, hey, this is a good thing because it means you're actually God's child. We don't discipline other people's children. We might want to. There are so many times I want to body slam Breck's ass. I I can't even see straight. But I don't 
Because Breck is not mind a body slam, and that grieves me. But when we're being disciplined, it means that we're actually God's child. And then there's this unspeakable joy. This joy that pervades our lives in spite of our circumstances. Friends, don't focus on the changing and fleeting nature of your circumstances. Focus on the unchanging nature of the God who controls your circumstances. The one who is taking all of those things and using them to bring you into his blessing and his joy. We see those same ups and downs in the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the writer of Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endures the agony of the cross. Jesus knew what it was like to face the judgment of God. He faced God's discipline. He faced God's wrath, not for his own sin, but for ours. And Jesus then trusted not his circumstances, but he trusted that his father would vindicate him and that he would bring him fully into the father's joy. And so this morning, as we think about the God who rescues, we are automatically and just we, we are just drawn to the table. We're drawn to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as we think about the way that God rescues those who are storm-tossed and who are wandering and who are sick and who are enslaved and shackled in prisons of their own making. It's the Lord Jesus who delivers us. It is the Lord Jesus whom God uses to rescue us. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks this morning that you are a God who rescues. And we thank and bless you for the Lord Jesus Christ, as he is the means by which you have delivered your people. Father, we pray this morning uh, there are some here who feel themselves under the weight of the judgment of God, and we pray that they would respond appropriately. Father, there are some today who have a real sense of the blessing of the Lord, and Father, I help them to understand it's not because they're awesome, it's because you're awesome. Father, there are some who uh, are mindful of the discipline of the Lord. And Father, I pray that in those moments they would understand uh, that that is, that is a strange way and a sort of backhanded compliment for assurance. For you only discipline your children whom you love. And Father, now, as we think about the joy, the joy that surpasses all understanding that is ours through the sacrifice of your son. Father, we pray that we would, uh, in this life, get a taste of it, knowing that in the life to come, that will be our experience. So we pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.